everyone, I'm Ray. And I'm Meg. And this is the Yo Philly Podcast, a podcast where we break down the qualities and curiosities that make Philadelphia unique. Join us each week as we explore the city of brotherly love's culture, history, and traditions. Thanks for listening. Yo, Ray! Yo, Meg! Yo, Philly! Yo, everybody! Welcome to the Yo Philly Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 4, Art of the Cheesesteak. And there's nothing quite like the feeling you get when you take a bite out of that perfect cheesesteak, we know. There aren't many variables to making a good cheesesteak. You know, you've got your bread, your meat, your cheese, maybe some onions, other toppings, but wow, if they are done right, there's nothing like it. You definitely need to be in the right mood for a cheesesteak. You know, hangry, drunk, both maybe? I don't know. That usually helps. It's not really a regular thing for us, but cheesesteaks are usually reserved for when we really just need a little bit of comfort food. Yeah, and of course, like the Philly cheesesteak has so much to do with like Philadelphia's national sort of brand and identity. Like everyone kind of associates cheesesteaks with Philadelphia, hence the Philly cheesesteak. Uh, here you can just call it a cheesesteak. It's fine. Yeah, you can't really call a cheesesteak a Philly cheesesteak in Philadelphia. You get looked at like you're crazy. <laughs> We've yeah. learned as outsiders. Yeah, but anyways, uh, it's it's probably no secret that cheesesteaks are sold all over the city of Philadelphia. You can pretty much get them anywhere. And sure, there are definitely more of the like touristy cheesesteak places that draw big crowds and you know offer a certain experience and all that fun stuff. But of course, there are plenty of other places that offer cheesesteaks as well. It's it's sort of a similar concept to like, you know, the idea that you can get a slice of pizza pretty much on every block in New York City. The same is more or less true in Philadelphia, I'd say. And that's not to say that you can't get bad pizza in New York City. And there are plenty of bad cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. But I think you get the gist. Yeah. You know, you can get like the big touristy experience. Is that going to be the best thing? Maybe not. But You'll figure it out. Yeah, and people get their, you know, favorites and their go-tos. We have our go-to places when we need them as well. But speaking of pizza, one thing that I've really come to appreciate down here is that most pizza places in Philly will have cheesesteaks as part of their menu. Yeah, something I was not expecting. And, you know, listen, there's no judgment if you have a delicious Philly cheesesteak with a slice of pizza. Like, that's your prerogative, man. We've all been there. We've all had to do it at some point in our lives. <laughs> but we're already going off on a tangent. Listen, if you're looking to streamline the whole hybridization process, you can get yourself a pizza steak, which is basically a normal cheese steak with pizza sauce, ideally with provolone or mozzarella. That is my happy compromise mm-hmm. right there. I live for a pizza steak. However, if you're looking for the pinnacle of the pizza slash cheesesteak combination, the holy grail you seek is called the Philly taco. <laughs> this is just crazy. You never, ever, ever heard of this until we moved here. You'll need to actually head down to South Street and first head up Jim's Steaks on 4th and South Street. Personally, I recommend the provolone on that. But if you're a whiz kind of person, you go for it. You do you. Then take your hot and juicy steak on over to Lorenzo's Pizza near 3rd and South. Grab yourself a slice of pizza. Cheese will be your only option. The slice is honestly bigger than your face, bigger than like three of your faces combined. You wrap up that slice of pizza around your cheesesteak. Boom, Philly taco. Soon to be followed by copious amount of food sweats and chest pain. High cholesterol will follow. Yeah, I've never tried that, but I don't really usually have room in my stomach after I'm done eating a cheesesteak. No, my God. And those Lorenzo slices are huge. I mean, you're done for the day if you eat that. A Lorenzo slice could feed a family of three (laughs) for a weekend. Let's just be real about that. But anyway, let's shift the conversation back to the proper cheesesteak. There's something pure, simple, and amazing about the way that a cheesesteak comes together, and it's sort of this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it model. It seems like it's really been perfected over the years. Yeah, don't don't screw with perfection. Right. And as part of this introduction, we wanted to present to you guys 
uh, courtesy of Tony Luke of Tony Luke Steaks in South Philly, his 10 Philly Cheesesteak Commandments. Tony Luke's has been a South Philly staple since the early 90s, and now they have more than, I think, like 30 locations. So they've branched out and applied this model in all kinds of contexts. But the owner of Tony Luke's has also made a few television appearances talking about what a cheesesteak is and what it isn't. So we'll go through his Ten Commandments and we'll see what he has to say. But of course, Tony Luke's Steaks was not the first steak shop in Philadelphia. Cheesesteaks are way older than the 1990s. So Tony Luke's does seem to have a pretty good grasp on what the Philly cheesesteak ought to be. I think I agree with most, if not all, of this list. So with that being said, hurry on into the church here, find an open pew, bow your heads, and listen to Father Tony Luke at the Church of Philly Cheesesteaks. That's my like angelic voice right there. Nice. Sorry, guys. My <clears throat> my voice is giving out on me, so that wasn't my best attempt, but you get the point. Anyway, the first commandment. Thou shall only use ribeye steak, the thin slice marbled kind. I mean, yes and no. If we're talking about the classic by the book cheesesteak, sure. By all means, it ought to be ribeye. I'm not sure what kinds of other cuts would taste great, but the baseline standard is ribeye. However, this this kind of, I think, for me personally, comes with an asterisk because we've definitely had some amazing steaks that have used roast pork, jerk chicken, you know, vegan cheesesteaks. There may be a little bit of category confusion going on, but these other options are delicious. And I tend to consider those cheesesteaks as well. I'm, I'm just saying, like, it doesn't have to be by the book ribeye for me. There's tons of different options, and I don't think it's sacrilegious. Yeah, I agree. And it's probably hard to tell the difference whether or not it's ribeye, but I, I would assume that's the starting point for most places. Uh, on to the second commandment. Thou shall cook on low. Low and slow is the way to go. And this makes sense because typically the meat you get on a cheesesteak, it's never really like crispy. You know, it tends to be soft and tender. And I think also the relative like thinness of the cuts makes a big difference, right? You, it's probably easy to overcook those. Yeah, yeah. So they definitely want to be on a short leash when they're on the grill. And I think the main thing you risk here is also drying the meat out when, in terms of overcooking it. So taking it slow will give you a greater range of control over the quality of it for sure. And when everything comes together and forms the cheesesteak, really the amount of moisture that's in the cheesesteak becomes a really critical factor in how much you like it or not like it. Yeah, I completely agree with it. And I need low and slow is the way to go on a poster in our kitchen, sir. <laughs> There's a reminder for you because you blitz everything. High heat it drives me crazy. Yeah, guilty. Guilty is charged. On to the third commandment. Thou shall only use Italian bread. You know, crispy on the outside, soft on the inside. I could eat a whole, I could just live on bread. I'm going to insert something here that I always like in cheesesteaks. This is the kind of like magical happy place where the bread, cheese, and a little bit of grease from the meat all come together in perfect harmony. Oh, if I'm eating a steak and I don't have that, it's a bit of a letdown. Like if it's too dry or if it's really freaking soggy, not a good experience. This goes back to the previous commandment. You're not going to get the cheesesteak harmony right if you overcook the ribeye. Yeah, I'm not going to challenge the third commandment at all. Italian bread is life for me. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Commandment number four. Thou shall not need condiments. And I think this is a similar school of thought. It's like if you go to a steakhouse or something, you don't ask for A1 steak sauce. It'll, it's like a slap in the face to the chef. You like ketchup on your steaks, though, you blasphemer. <laughs> well, hang on. We haven't gotten that. I need that needs some explanation. So, I mean, usually if you get a cheesesteak, right, like you're probably going to have fries on the side. Sometimes you maybe have Old Bay seasoning. Sometimes it's maybe just plain fries, a little bit of ketchup. And, you know, usually by the end of the meal, you know, there's a little bit of a mess. And I like to use what remains of my cheesesteak, bread and all, to mop up 
everything in there. You know, it's usually a little bit of stuff that's fallen out, maybe a little ketchup and it tastes just fine. I'm not like slathering the ketchup on there to, as a starting point. I certainly don't order it that way. Well, we can forgive you for that sin, I guess. I hope so. On to the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not use Swiss cheese. Ugh. Which, okay, I'm sorry. Personal side, never a fan of Swiss cheese. I just don't get it. You can use American. You can use provolone. You can use the Whiz. That's it. Anything else on your cheesesteak, you're doing it wrong. Unless it's mozzarella for a pizza steak, I'll let that slide. But Swiss cheese, come on, get out of here. And from what we can tell, this is a specific reference to the time where John Kerry, who was running for president against George W. Bush, ordered a cheesesteak while campaigning in Philadelphia. He asked for Swiss cheese on a cheesesteak. This basically effectively ended his campaign. Dunzo. Not happening. Craig LeBan, a food critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, had this to say regarding the incident. Quote, if the Swiss cheese weren't bad enough, the Canada asked photographers not to take his picture while he ate the sandwich. Shutters clicked anyway, and Carrie was caught nibbling daintily at his sandwich. Another serious faux pas. It will doom his candidacy in Philadelphia. Unquote. That's what I'm saying, guys. Get the wrong kind of cheese on your cheesesteak. Presidential campaign's over. Yep, dreams dashed over your cheese selection. Pretty easy one. Don't screw that up. Commandment number five should probably be the easiest one to not break. Agreed. So moving on, commandment number six. Thou shall allow onions if fried. And you know, onions in general, I think, complement the ribeye really well. According to this commandment, just don't overdo the onions. Don't like caramelize them. And on the flip side, don't provide them raw. And this one is, again, pretty simple, straightforward. Just make sure your onions are just right. And on to the seventh cheesesteak commandment. Thou shall use a little oil. Not a lot. I'm guilty of this as well. My two, <laughs> my, my two biggest offenses are using too much oil and cooking things on too high a heat. It, it's a disaster scenario. It's a grease fire waiting to happen with you. Yeah, so I'm actually in trouble a little on this list. But uh, all it really needs is a splash of canola oil at the most, just enough to provide a little separation. They should not be all that greasy. I mean, you know, a little grease can be okay when it's on the steak. But if you overdo the oil, that's going to like set this ripple effect where you're going to wind up with this really soggy steak. Nobody likes a soggy steak. It's terrible. Soggy bottom. Soggy bottoms. Ugh. On to number eight. Thou shalt wait for your steak. It has to be made fresh when you order it. Don't let it uh, sit around, you know? You, you gotta get it. Respect the ritual of the order. Every proper steak is made to order. You're not like buying it and popping it in the microwave. No, no, no. You're getting it fresh. Number nine. Thou shalt not use a fork and knife. Come on, people, pick it up and eat it with your hands. This is how God intended it. Just get out of here otherwise. And finally, number 10. Thou shalt consume excessive cheesesteaks. There's a cheesesteak for every occasion. Visitors from out of town, comfort food, you drank too much last night. You drank too much last night and you need some comfort food. The Eagles win. I don't know. You're sad. You're happy. Whatever. Eat all the things. It's everywhere. It's portable. Get it freshly made. It's better than fast food, right? Just get a fresh cheesesteak. Boom. Okay, so that's it. That's all 10 of Tony Luke's cheesesteak commandments. We're now officially indoctrinated into the cheesesteak faith. You're welcome. <laughs> So a quick recap, use thin ribeye, cook on low, use fresh Italian bread, no condiments, welcome the onions, light on the oil, be patient, use your hands, and eat, eat, eat. And finally, for the love of God, do not order Swiss cheese. Don't do it, party foul. So reviewing this list in its entirety, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I have boo. sinned. Boo, <laughs> But after reviewing this list, I got to say, I think I'm changed for the better. And hopefully our listeners are as well. Yeah, we can only hope. 
You're welcome, Philadelphia. On that note, I think it's time for a quick break. Because we need to fire up the griddle and start slow cooking some ribeye, you know what I mean? My mouth is watering. Dang these food episodes. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good. And when we come back, we're going to do our best to give you an oral history of the Philadelphia cheesesteak, which will be littered with facts, myths, legends, and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying the Yo Philly podcast, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we're back. So, all right, cheesesteak history. This can be the stuff of Philly folklore and legend here. We're really going to take a dive into it. Kind of reminds me of the origins of water, wooter ice? Wooter ice. Wooter ice, sorry. But Wooter Ice, you know, we talked about that back in Season 1, Episode 5 of the podcast, if you want to check that out. Before we get started, we really need to credit Philly Magazine for several invaluable resources that we've included in our research, including The Cheesesteak and Oral History, which was written back in 2018. Definitely check the show notes out for that. To start with what we know, Philadelphia's Italian population along with many other different groups of immigrants, boomed in the late 1800s and early 1900s. These included different families from Abruzzi, Calabria, Sicily, all over the place in Italy. A good chunk of those Italian immigrants actually settled in South Philly, hence, you know, the Italian market in that neighborhood. And around this area, it was somewhat common to see street vendors selling cheap sandwiches out of carts. It was, you know, a thing. Street carts, selling sandwiches, not a big deal. And they really sold inexpensive cuts of meat with these. Yeah, and this was really meant to provide just quick and easy sustenance for working class people, usually around lunchtime, so they can just eat on a budget and then get back to work. Allegedly, the first known cheesesteak was made back in 1930 by a street vendor in South Philly by the name of Pat Oliveri. Pat and his brother Harry operated their food cart near the corners of 9th Street, Wharton Street, and Pashunk Avenue. However, prior to making the first cheesesteak, they primarily sold hot dogs and fish cakes. Mmm, tasty. And the story goes that Pat became a little tired of their usual menu and wanted to grill up something different for lunch. So he asked his brother Harry to go over to the nearby butcher and get some beef to throw on the grill. Harry returned with some slices of ribeye, and before too long, the wonderful aroma of fried beef and onions was radiating from the Olivieri food cart in all directions. The legend goes that the smell attracted the attention of the cab driver, who was a regular customer. In order to eat on the go, the cabbie was like, yo, whatever you're cooking, put it on a roll for me so I can take it with me and eat it. And after trying this new innovation, the cabbie insisted they quit it with the fish cakes and hot dogs and stick with this new mouth-watering innovation. The cab driver was enamored with the sandwich and told all of his cabbie buddies, and before too long, the working class had a new favorite lunch. Yeah, and this is where the legend slash historical fact gets a little fuzzy, but it's worth noting that this isn't the first time that somebody decided to put some steak on bread. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Um, But what made this more unique was the way it was sort of hybridized with the kind of preparation style of the hot dogs. So it was a lot more similar to the sort of shape of the cheesesteak as we know it today. It wasn't quite like a steak sandwich. It was something that was starting to get its own legs. And historian Celeste Morello contends that the recipes for beefsteak sandwiches can be found relatively easily in various 19th century cookbooks. However, they usually called for different kinds of breads and seasonings that the Olivieri's were using. By the year 1940, the Olivieri's eventually opened up a shop on 9th and Passyunk Avenue, which it happens to be the legendary steak shop, Pat's King of Steaks. And a fun fact here, Jim's Steaks opened up in 1939 out in West Philly, and sold steak sandwiches from the front window of a corner house on 62nd and Noble Streets. We talked about Jim's a little bit earlier, and it's now located on South Street. It's an integral part of the Philly taco that we discussed in the last segment. And I think Jim's was certainly far enough away where it didn't really have direct 
conflict or beef <laughs> beef pun but on didn't have beef with uh, with pats so it wasn't really that big a deal but they were also on the scene in the 30s and 40s as well anyways back to pats the thing about food carts is that they tend to be seasonal for the most part and near the area where the Olivieris would set up their food cart, a guy by the name of Joe Butch owned a building that had a kitchen upstairs and a tavern downstairs. Butch propositioned Pat to make his steak sandwiches in the kitchen during the winter and sell them in the tavern. And eventually, before too long, people were eating more than they were drinking. And these steak sandwiches were really starting to take off. On the first floor, they actually cut a hole in the wall of the tap room so they could sell these steak sandwiches directly onto the street. And by 1940, the Olivieres took over the entire building and voila, Pat's King of Steaks now had its own storefront. That's pretty incredible. That's awesome. Now, there was one notable omission here on these sandwiches. No cheese. We are only talking thin sliced beef with onions served on an Italian loaf of bread. So this is not like the cheese steak as we know it today. Because hello, cheese steak. We need cheese in the title here. Even the original sign for Pat's King of Steaks reads Steak Shop, with no mention of a cheesesteak. And according to local legend, cocky Joe Lorenzo, an employee at Pat's Steaks in the 1950s, put some provolone cheese on his steak during one of his lunch breaks, and the idea caught on pretty quick. It's also worth noting that in 1953, Kraft Foods introduced Cheese Whiz to America, which is perfectly acceptable to have on your steak if you don't prefer provolone or American. Some would argue that you really have to have your steak with whiz, and that's the baseline standard. And while that is common to say, I don't think history supports this claim. But again, here, the baseline is no freaking Swiss cheese, please. And the thing that rubs me the wrong way about the whiz specifically is we were talking a little bit more in the first segment about how this is this freshly made thing, you know, and I'm pretty sure that there are going to be tubs of cheese whiz that survive, you know, the apocalypse. I'm pretty sure you're right. You know, so the idea of having such a highly processed ingredient on the cheesesteak to me seems a little weird. I almost always prefer American or provolone. And we can see here that sort of the first case, according to legend, was provolone. So I feel better about my my choices when I ask for provolone on a steak. And to just throw in a little bit of Philly slang here, and this is pretty much a universal standard wherever you go to order a cheesesteak. If you say, give me a cheesesteak whiz wit, what does that mean? That means with cheese whiz and with onions. Yeah, you got it. The whiz is the cheese, of course, and the wit is onions. Wit onions, wit out. That's that's my attempt at a Philly accent. (laughs) And as far as I'm aware, there isn't a slang for... The provolone or American or anything else, but... Prove. Prove wit. Prove wit. <laughs> okay, I don't think that's a thing. I'm gonna make it a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> Hashtag prove wit. Prove wit. Anyways, Pat Olivieri really had a knack for marketing his family's new sandwich. He started bringing his product out to local theaters, concert halls, movie premieres, etc., and tried to attract celebrity star power to back his shop and give it more publicity. And over the years, Olivieri really helped to launch the cheesesteaks from a local or regional specialty into a national icon. He once met Humphrey Bogart, as told by Frank Olivieri, the current owner of Pat Steaks. And the story goes that Pat asked Bogart to hold his 38 caliber revolver, <laughs> <laughs> to hold his 38 caliber revolver for a photo op at his steak shop. And he goes on to say that his uncle Pat was crazy. Fun fact. <laughs> Uh, Pat's King of Steaks was and still is open 24-7. Whenever you get a hankering for a cheesesteak, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, Pat's has your back. They stopped making the fish cakes a little while ago, but they continue to sell hot dogs, if you're in the mood for one, in addition to their steaks. And who doesn't like hot dogs? Well, you know, again, gotta be in the right mood for one for me, personally. So we've talked a fair amount about the Pat's side of the cheesesteak equation, But by necessity, we must also discuss Geno's. Come on. Pat's and Geno's has this fun and impressive historical cheesesteak rivalry, and everyone has their opinions about which cheesesteak they prefer. This rivalry was probably more of a media creation than anything, but nevertheless, it is what it is now. We're all here for it. Yeah, and it's something that's really polarizing. And, 
Granted, Pats and Genos are considered a bit more touristy nowadays, but people know where they stand on the Pats and Genos issue. And these examples probably aren't exactly right, but they're ones that I think of when it's like you have to have a stance like one way or the other. Like if you live in New York, are you a Yankees fan or are you a Mets fan? In LA, are you a Lakers fan or a Clippers fan? And in Philly, you better know if you're Pats or Genos. There it is. And of course, Pats and Geno's has become heavily commercialized over the years. It's often so flooded with tourists that the locals aren't really too excited to wait in line. Like, usually it's just like, yeah, the tourists are going there. You just find your steak somewhere else. Anyway, let's talk about Geno's. In 1966, a guy by the name of Joey Vento opened Geno's Steaks with a near identical menu to Pat's King of Steaks. And it's located actually right across the street from Pat's. It's a spitting distance away. Geno's is also open 24-7, just like Pat's. And, you know, I suppose imitation is normally the sincerest form of flattery, maybe. But in this case, this is a real true rivalry that was born. In researching for this episode, we came across an old flyer for Geno's Steaks, which read, Wow, my daddy's steak sandwiches are out of this world. We're across from the rest, but we are the best. So they're just like openly acknowledging that they weren't first, but they claim that they're the best. Yeah, we saw this quote from Joey Vento, which read, that guy across the street, referring to Pat Steaks, claims he invented the steak sandwich. I'll give him that. He claims he invented the whiz. Okay, I'll give him that. All I did was come along and perfect it. Fighting words. <laughs> So it's worth noting that before Gino's opened up, Joey Vento's father also had a cheesesteak cart set up near a playground over by Pashunk and Wharton Streets, and they eventually opened up this small shop as well. Now, before you hate on Gino's too much, understand that the Vento family fell on hard times and was mixed up in some criminal activity, you know? From what we can tell, Joey Vento wanted to live a clean, crime-free life. His father actually killed a guy who owed him a bunch of money and went off to jail. His father ultimately died in jail at the age of 46. And Joey's brother was a gangster who played by his own rules, so it's not like he was getting help with the business from him. Joey actually turned to his wife's father, a bookie, who loaned him $2,000 to open up Gino's Steaks. So even though Gino's comes across as this copycat business, it was certainly tough sledding for Joey early on. Yeah, and since this time, you know, there have been hundreds of cheesesteak shops that have opened up since Pat's did back in 1940. However, because of the proximity to Pat's, Gino's got a ton of media attention, and in return, Pat's got media attention too. Nothing quite gives a rivalry legs like media attention. Owners from both sides would routinely throw jabs at the other publicly, and they were openly denigrating each other's businesses. For example, Joey Vento of Gino's always claimed that he never changed his sandwich recipe, and he's been consistent with it over the years. He likes to point out that Pat's steaks, while well, at one time had the full slices of ribeye, now they chop it up into like little pieces, and so they changed the recipe there. Okay, little jab. Vento would also say publicly that Pat started out as a hot dog cart, and after all this time, it still looks like a hot dog cart. Burn. Jeez, <laughs> a little bit rough there. Frank Olivieri counterpunches, you know, sometimes with Spongebob references, go figure. Ray really appreciates those. He's a huge Spongebob fan. Mm -hmm. So Frank Olivieri would say stuff like, Joe Vento is like Plankton, and we are like the Krusty Krab. He's trying to steal our recipe all the time. Which, like, fighting words with Spongebob, I don't know I can take that seriously. Pat's, of course, also has bragging rights to being there first, Frank's also got the claim that he flat out sells more steaks than Gino's, 10 to 1, he'll say, and that the guy he gets his bread from will back him up. Right. And if you look at it today, it's probably not 10 to 1. It looks like 50-50 for the most part. Yeah, like it's, the, it's a big claim. The lines always seem to be about the same because when people are trying it for the first time, it's usually said that you have to try both. So people will usually get in line and split up their groups, get steaks from both and try them out and see what they think. There you go. And we talked a little earlier about media attention, and it definitely seems like the general cheesesteak hype really started to take off in the 1970s as other shops started to open. Everyone definitely kind of played up on the Pats and Geno's rivalry. However, there were some other steak shops that were starting to get on the scene. 
In the 1970s, Philly Magazine started awarding their annual Cheesesteak Award in their Best Of issue, and it became surprisingly controversial early on. Yeah, go figure. Maury Z. Lovey, who was Philly Mag's editorial director from 1970 to 1980, had this to say about the Cheesesteak Award. Quote, Over the years, the Cheesesteak Award was one of the things that people got most upset about. You rarely heard, that was a great pick. What you actually heard was, are you guys out of your f***ing minds? How can you say that? Unquote. There it is, first F-bomb of the Yo Philly podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> Lovey recalls getting a lot of letters and angry rants every time they crowned a new cheesesteak champion. Also during the 70s and 80s, fast food really started taking root in American culture, which kind of harkens back to the early roots of cheesesteaks being for the working class on the go. But the cheesesteak at least now has its standards for quality cuts of meats. Let's be real. And like we talked about in the first segment, you know, there's such a variety of different interpretation of cheesesteaks nowadays. You can get them, you know, with chicken. You can get them with, I'm sure, other cuts of meat besides ribeye. You can get uh, like roast pork and all other kinds of stuff. Or no meat at all. <laughs> and really, you know, if you're thinking about fast food, at least this is like good quality cuts of meat for the most part, fresh bread. I mean, it's not the healthiest thing you could ever eat. I suppose you can throw some lettuce and tomato on there if you felt so inclined. But, you know, if it's between that and like a Big Mac, cheesesteak's probably a little healthier. At least, you know, it hasn't been sitting around wrapped up in plastic for God knows how long, like uber, uber, uber processed. That's I mean, you know, like the fresh ingredients, it means a little something. And also, in the early 1980s, a guy by the name of Bill Schultz actually started selling chicken cheesesteaks for those who were a little bit more concerned about their caloric intake, but still wanted cheesesteaks in their lives. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, over the past few decades, you started to see a little more of a proliferation of vegetarian and vegan options. And if by some miracle we have retained the attention of vegetarians and vegans up to this point in the episode where we've just been talking about meat and cheese. Uh, thank you for hanging in there. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you can actually find some decent alternatives to the traditional cheesesteak that are vegan and vegetarian friendly. These are kind of, you know, like health and moral conscious decisions that are good to see, you know, in the food landscape. And this was due in part to Vegadelphia, which opened in 2004. And they actually sell plant-based alternatives for beef and chicken to put in different kinds of sandwiches. So, you know, you got to love that. And we also have the Questlove cheesesteak. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. And I always think of that time uh, we were at a Phillies game and it was getting to be a little later in the game, maybe sixth or seventh inning. We were getting hungry. We had just heard about this new Questlove vegan cheesesteak that they were selling at the ballpark. And Meg had offered to go and get one. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to stay and watch the game if that's okay. And she's like, cool. Yeah, and I had to wait in the longest freaking line for this cheesesteak, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not a huge baseball fan, so I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. And of course, I start hearing like a bunch of cheering going on while I'm in line, and I'm like, do I get out of the line? Like what's happening? And what do I see on the TV, right? What do I see on the TV while I'm waiting in line? <laughs> okay, so it was this this couple like two rows in front of us. This guy proposed to his girlfriend and there was this big celebration. They just got engaged. And imagine on this Jumbotron, it's like them hugging and kissing each other. And then like me photobombing right behind with the empty seat next to me where Meg would have been. I couldn't believe it. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is, of course, of course, just a riot. <laughs> yeah. But Meg came back with the goods and that was a that was a decent cheesesteak. I couldn't believe it was vegan. Yeah, I know. So, you know. Was it worth waiting in a really long line and missing, you know, photobombing the Jumbotron? Eh, pretty close, I guess. All right, definitely time for a break. But when we come back, we have a special surprise for you in our second segment. So definitely stay tuned. Yeah, we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us and stay up to date with all the latest podcast news, future episodes, and other updates, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YoPhillyPod or email us at YoPhillyPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.
All right, we're back. So I promised something special for you guys, and I hope we deliver. So we have on deck here an interview with Jim Pappas, and he's been interviewed by a few other publications as well. He is the local authority on all things cheesesteaks. He has a website called www.philadelphiacheesesteakadventure.com where he documents all of his different cheesesteaks that he's eaten over the years. As of this recording, he's eaten more than 700 cheesesteaks and has this amazing evaluation system on his website. So definitely go check that out. If you're curious to learn more about just the wide variety of cheesesteaks that are offered in the city, where the best ones are, where the worst ones are, and everything in between. So without further ado... Let's get into our interview with Jim Pappas. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is Jim Pappas, the Philadelphia Cheesesteak Adventure. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today, Jim. We are so excited to talk all things cheesesteaks with you. That's all right. I'm very excited to talk to you and help help some New Yorkers become Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate that. Uh, so to start off, uh, the header on your website, www.philadelphiacheesesteakadventure.com, it reads, my quest for the ultimate cheesesteak. Have you found it yet? I have not. I have not. And uh, the more cheesesteaks I eat, the more places I go, I, I don't think I'm going to, but I will enjoy the journey best I can. Nice, nice. And just kind of rewinding a little bit, can you tell us about how you got started on this cheesesteak adventure of yours? Like, it, it is an ultimate quest. I'm so curious how you got started with it. Sure. Well, four years ago, I found myself, I got separated from my wife. Mm -hmm. We had been uh, 25 years, raised two daughters. They were both off in college. And um, I wanted to do something different and fun. And my wife didn't like that idea. So we separated, and I moved back to the North Wilmington area, but we didn't know what, you know, mid-50s people did for fun. <laughs> started it, when I first started it, and I was talking to my new best friend, and it's like, well, what do you like to do? I'm like, I, I'm like, I like I like to do stuff. I like to be out and about doing stuff. He's like, well, what have you done recently? I'm like, I raised my kids. <laughs> I went to work, came home, went to the fields, did a project around that, and started all over again. So, you know, it, it's a... You know, we, we we get caught up in our little world. So it's about, it's about getting out and doing stuff, going someplace different and, and trying different things. So we said, that's, that's what we'll do. We'll start asking family and friends where their favorite cheesesteak places are. And then we'll go try them. And then when we're in that area, we'll find something to do in that area. That's the beginning of it. That's incredible. It's really morphed into something like totally unique. And yeah, seriously, this like ultimate quest. I think it's like Don Quixote or like... <laughs> Yeah, and, and oh yeah, well, yeah, because one thing that's because I uh, I Uber and Lyft drive. When I started asking my riders, yeah, you know, the passion just came flooding out of them, and that's when yeah, you know, that's when it took legs. Yeah, you know, it became a, a website and it's social media and, and all that kind of thing. That's incredible. Yeah, for sure, and you know, it, one thing's for certain, like we've picked up definitely similar vibes. Like people are very passionate about where their specific like go-to favorite place is. And that's always like such an interesting conversation to have with people we've found. Uh, it's definitely, it's like, uh, it's like the beach boys be true to your school or the sharks and jets, like your set of gang colors. You have on uh, your favorite <laughs> cheesesteak place. Like, do you belong to? I think one of the questions I'm going to start posing to people is do Philadelphians, would we, would we rather eat a cheesesteak or would we rather argue about cheesesteak? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I vote both. Both, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, uh, as of this recording, how many cheesesteaks have you sort of like evaluated and tried on this journey of yours and over how long a span? I've had 704 different official filled up the cheesesteak adventure cheesesteaks. Wow. Yeah, I had my first one for the adventure on May 16th, 2018. That's efficient. Wow. I, I'm, I'm on a quest. There you go. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> I took an oath in my basement uh, to eat every cheesesteak, so I need to be. I need to stay true to that oath. That it, yeah, you you're committed. There's no question. Hey, an oath's an oath, no matter where it happens. <laughs> and I'm curious too. I guess like, what is the region? Like, where exactly are your perimeters for these cheesesteaks? Because I do Uber and Lyft drive. I just whenever I'm when it's lunchtime, wherever I am. I'll stop and have a cheesesteak. 
So the base region is as far south as uh, Bear, Delaware, out to Reading, Pennsylvania, up to Princeton, New Jersey, and then I've taken a couple short trips down the shore. I mean, I've, I've had some outside of that area, but that's I, I pretty much stay as close to Philly as I can. Nice. That's a good region, I think. Like, that's a good area to sample several different kinds. And I'm curious, would you mind breaking down your rating system for us a little bit? Like, what are you looking for in these cheesesteaks? So on my website, I have a spreadsheet that has the name of the place, where they are, their address. I try to do it by region, like um, state, county, what they are. Try to hit a couple of the amenities. Do they have alcohol? Do they inside seating? Those kinds of things. And then the main part of that is my scoring system. It's five categories, 20 points each category, so a total of 100. It's The first is the roll, meat, cheese, extras, and then overall, each 20 points. And it's funny, too, because it's like, okay, about how like the cheese thing adventure kind of evolved, and it's like that TV show, the, the, you know, A Million Little Things. My rating system used to be 45 points, and a friend of mine that, loves to be brutally honest with me, <laughs> told me that I was ridiculous 45 points and no one got it. And I had to change it to either 10 to or, or 100. Mm-hmm. So that's when it became 100. Wow. That's, that is impressive. And that is thorough. Like those are things I wouldn't even think to consider always. So nice. Like you said too, about how it, it, it's evolved and like the passion and, and that it is more than just the meat, cheese and roll. Yeah, and you mentioned as one of those categories, uh, cheese. And I'm curious, what's your go-to and are you a whiz guy? Because I tend to shy away from it a little bit. And I think at the most, I like to get it on the side and sort of like dip the, the cheesesteak into it and control it a little bit. <laughs> I, I love that you put your whiz on the side and uh, use it as a dipping sauce. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. But no, I am not a whiz person. I uh, When I first started the adventure... It was American cheese, fried onions, mushrooms, lettuce, and tomato. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stuck very rigidly to that. The, one of the things before the adventure, I, I mean, I knew there was different cheeses. I didn't realize they tasted that much different. I had my first cheese to go provolone on it. And uh, provolone instantly became my recreational cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I'd, I'd have to say American is my go-to. Um, if they have a house sauce... Or even broccoli rob. If they have something, I, I think provolone needs to be broken up with something. I think provolone needs a little moisture with it. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, you're giving me ideas now. I know. I'm like, <laughs> it's right around lunchtime when we're recording this, and I'm drooling just hearing you talk about it. <laughs> bad, bad decision to do a cheesesteak interview at lunch, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So. Of all of the highest rated cheesesteaks that you've tried in your travels, what would you say is the most consistent rule that they tend to share or follow? Like, what is the most common factor among those highest rated ones? Brotherly love. Ooh. <laughs> and it's definitely, it's it's the grill person trying to make a good cheesesteak. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst cheesesteaks I've had is just because the grill person was having a bad day, they weren't paying attention, or something was going on. Yeah, my top favorite cheesesteaks are all kind of a little bit different. and But the, the one common denominator is that grill person or owner of the place trying to do something different, trying to do something better. It's definitely a grill person. It's definitely caring. That's a, that's a wonderful answer. Yeah, like, I love that it's an intangible quality, you know. Yeah, like, right? Like, Yeah, when I, when I started the whole adventure, everybody told me, they're like, you're, you're wasting your time. You're an idiot. You know, cheesesteaks are roll meat and cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone knows where favorite places. Everybody has. Everybody knows where to go to get a good one. I, I knew one of the times too. One of the million little things that told me I was doing the right thing was when a person that I went to junior high school with reconnected with on Facebook because he saw my page, and he was berating me over doing it and wasting my time. And then the day that I posted a picture, and he he his comment was, "Wow, that's a good cheesesteak." Then I. I knew that I was on to something that they are. They are all a little different. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think, yeah, I think you can you can really taste when somebody puts love into food, you know? Like when they're really making something 
with like passion and care. Yeah. And so when you when you go uh, to places, I'm curious, like, do they are they aware of you? Like, do they is it almost like a food critic type situation? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Uh, a couple times. OK. And, uh, yeah. I like to think I'm a local celebrity, but no, I rarely get recognized. And I have, you know, I have T-shirts and shirts sometimes. That's so what the Tech adventure. So um, I don't hide the fact, but no, nah, I don't get I don't get recognized that often. Well, I, I think uh, with the kind of numbers you're putting up, maybe uh, people better know you're coming I so think they can so. <laughs> put a little extra effort into the steak. Um, they don't want to waste your time. I know I wouldn't. It's, well, it's funny. It's a couple of places. A couple of times when I pulled up to a place and I and like someone was looking out the window and they saw me and it's like, oh, you know, it's also goes back to brothers of love. The places that do the great cheesesteaks are aware of all their competition, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that reach out. They're like, hey, you know, who's new in my area? You know, I I regularly go out, you know, to try and sample the other places and meet the other people. You know, if someone reaches out to me, if someone has a restaurant or sub shop yes they'll reach out to me sometimes and be like hey who's in my area who should i try who should mm-hmm. i meet who's like me i know when i go there i'm going to get a good cheesesteak because you know if they're doing if they're going that far you know they uh, they're trying real hard gotcha um so i'm curious uh what are your sort of like pet peeves like when you order a steak that's not quite there what are what's some of those things that make you go like oh man i can't believe they did this well the first is just walking into a place, I guess because I'm I'm aware and I'm and I, and I am looking. Just walking into a place and seeing stuff like left out in the open, or just hearing conversations behind the counter. You know, pet peeve, I guess, is just um, customer experience. You know, plus I'm you know plus by lunchtime I'm cranky. You know, mm. I want <laughs> I want a nice place, a place to sit down. I want to be able to wash my hands. But walking in and just customer experience don't make me you know don't crowd us into a you know a shoot or something, you know, find a way to get us in and out, you know, lunch comes every day. <laughs> and if you serve once, you would think you'd have a way to get people in and out of your store quickly. And then the role, it's funny, the role, the poor role, a bad role. No one ever says, boy, that was a great cheesesteak. I just love that role. That's just the greatest role in the world. But I was like, man, that's the role was hard. The role sets you off when you're of course to a good cheesesteak or to your not liking it. I think those are just the two things that can get you going in a, in a good or bad direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can totally see that kind of going in a different direction. I'm, I'm sure, you know, eating over 700 cheesesteaks, you've probably seen some interesting interpretations, you know, like how experimental can these cheesesteaks get? Like what's the weirdest thing you've seen out there? <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, I was talking to someone the other day and they're talking about, you know, circus cheesesteaks. So I don't, I don't like like the gimmicky, like the, the South Philly taco. Sure, and, uh, yeah. But, um, and, you know, everybody has their own, you know, the gritty where you put scrapple on it or you put eggs on it. You know, you know, there's a kind, you know, there's the, the regular combinations of stuff or cheese fries or, uh, you know, so aside from all those kinds of things where you can put good cheese fries on it or cheese sticks or different stuff like that, the... My top two, I guess, would be the bulgogi, the Korean barbecue cheesesteaks. Wow. As a whole cheesesteak, that was interesting. That was good. That was flavorful. Oh, that's wild. That's that Thank was... you for sharing that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And can you can you say for us definitively here whether or not it's okay to put ketchup on a cheesesteak? <laughs> this is going to be the clickbait headline for the episode. It's like Jim's, Jim makes a hot take here. What is it? <laughs> Ketchup. Now, before the adventure, I, I don't put ketchup on my cheesesteaks. But before the adventure, I would regularly get a pizza steak. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, of course, that's just, and that's just loaded with tomato sauce. Before the adventure, if I didn't get a pizza steak, I would always get tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Trying to replace the ketchup a little but not going ketchup. So, ketchup, no. But pizza steak, yes. Tomatoes, yes. All right. All right. You heard it here first. I think that's I think that's fair. <laughs> if you talk to some of the old timers, uh, Pat of Pat and Gino's fame, the original owner didn't put ketchup out for years, according to cheesesteak uh, legend. Interesting. Hmm. 
So aside from the classic thin sliced ribeye, do you kind of have a, a taste or appreciation for other meats? Is that still technically kind of a cheesesteak? I'm thinking maybe like uh, roast pork, jerk chicken. I think I've seen that kind of stuff out there. Well, it's funny you put jerk chicken in your question because there's a place on Gerard around fifth or sixth. I think it's called Reggae Reggae. And they do a jerk chicken cheesesteak that's pretty darn tasty. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, roast pork. I mean, no, because everybody thinks of they're just so separate. You know, you're either getting a roast pork or you're getting a cheesesteak. Even though more and more people are probably raw provolone on a cheesesteak. Personally, I don't care. I mean, I went to a place, uh, there's a place out in Chester County that is primarily a deli and just cold cuts, but they take their roast beef and they'll heat it up in a pan with a little bit of sauce. And that's one of the best cheesesteaks I've ever had because it's a little leaner meat. But for me personally, no. I'm fine with whatever you want to use. I'm not sophisticated enough to know the difference between ribeye, sirloin, shoulder, neck, you know, the different cuts. Yeah, I don't know. And it's, that's the other thing, too, is people will call me they, or they'll message me. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about doing a, a food truck or a whatever, you know, what kind of meat should I use? And I'm like, I, I don't know. My skill set is I'll eat something and I'll tell you if I like it. That's where my skills end. (laughs) Perfect. That's perfect. And kind of going off of that, you know, we tried the Questlove vegan cheesesteak when we were at the Phillies a couple years ago. And I personally liked it quite a bit. I mean, like, what are your thoughts on like vegan cheesesteaks? Or have you, you know, tried the Questlove one? I've not tried the Questlove. I've had four different vegan I went to a place where they took the Promise Burger and made it more like a cheesesteak. That was good. The one was all bobbed up and, you know, saucy and wonderful and different flavors. And, you know, that was good. The one was a little dry. And the the last was almost swimming in sauce. (laughs) So I haven't had the greatest luck with vegan, but everybody's included on the adventure. (laughs) Well, it's appreciated. It's good stuff. So, is your cheesesteak adventure kind of more about the journey or the destination? And do you see an endpoint to it? No endpoint in sight. I actually I have a list of places. If I see something when I'm out and about, where people will message me, you know, you got to try somewhere. On my go-to list, I have 309 places to get to that people have told me about. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely no end in sight. And it's definitely about the journey. It's definitely, you know, when people talk about the cheesesteaks, when I ask my writers about cheesesteak or talk about cheesesteaks, I hear more times more about who they ate with, what they're doing before or after they ate the cheesesteak. It's all those other things you hear about with the cheesesteaks. So, um, no, it's definitely about the adventure. It's definitely about getting out. I mean, when I did my top, I did, I've done two top 20 lists. And when I did my first top 20 list, I had 20 categories. You know, if you want to go out, you know, if you want to go see bald eagles in their natural habitat on the way down, stop at the Penn Brewing Station. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to sit by the river, go to, geez, Shanks, you know. So, you know, it's all depending on what you want to do. That's, you know, it's an adventure. Just part of, you know, making memories, eating cheesesteaks. You know, when I talk to people about it, I hear much more about who they're with, what they're doing, than what they got on their cheesesteak. Yeah, and I, I think I saw on your website, you're you're totally open for recommendations, right? If people wanted to reach out and say, oh, you got to go try this place. I'm open for recommendations, guest eaters. I'm open to everything. That's, that's awesome. And yeah, kind of going off of that, how can people follow you? Like, where should they go? How can they hear more about your cheesesteak adventure? Um, you know, the floor is yours. Like, let people know what to expect from you. It's funny because I'm a one-man show and I and social media and the internet's all new and scary to me. So <laughs> for just the numbers and the where I've been and the facts, you know, I'd go to my um, the website because on the website, you click on the spot where it says click here for the spreadsheet. That's where you get to see my notes on every place because every place I do, I also do like a little synopsis and then I have the different categories and then there's the notes in the categories. But if you want dig into where I've been. The website's the best place, PhiladelphiaCheesesteakAdventure.com. If you want to, if you if you have a place in mind and you want to know if I've been there, 
probably the easiest way to find that out is without going to the spreadsheet and sorting is um, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel up the cheesesteak adventure and I title all my videos the same build up the cheesesteak adventure at Bob's pizza, bulk pizza. But then also um, Instagram cheesesteak adventure, Twitter. I'm cheesesteak adventure, I think. And Facebook page build up the cheesesteak adventure on the Facebook. That's great. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. This was my pleasure. Yeah, this is really fascinating, and uh, I think we're we're both getting a little hungry here. Um, we are in the Fishtown area. Are there any spots that stand out to you that we should think about checking out? Oh no, you know what you have in Fishtown? Oh, well, you have um, the Coffee House too. You have the Hangover Cheesesteak. Oh, that cheesesteak is amazing. Really? You know, for brunch. Oh my goodness. They probably bake them fresh in the rolls because the seeded roll and it's just a wonderful roll. It's got a crust on it, but it's very edible, easy to eat. The eggs and the cheesesteak meat are just combined together nicely. Cheesesteak was amazing. I mean, what a great brunch cheesesteak or, you know, breakfast cheesesteak. Yeah, the, the coffee house. And then my one of my favorite places to eat cheesesteak is right up the street from here, the Philadelphia Brewing Company. Yeah. They open at 11 o'clock. So I can get my cheesesteaks from that area and head over there and uh, and eat them there. Oh man! All right. Well, we're definitely going to try that one for sure. Like I mentioned real quickly, too, is my uh, calendar. I did a 2021 cheesesteak calendar where oh. I uh, highlight a different cheese every month, and um, along like what we were talking about, they're all places that you can go and do something. You know, it's not just it's just not go down to the corner X and get a good cheesesteak. It's, um, you know, go to in October, just passed is um, was Hog Island Steaks, Penrose Asylum. Yeah, October, go to Penrose Asylum, get scared, and then go have a cheesesteak at Hog Island Steaks. <laughs> so it's all stuff like that. We they're out of the ordinary, but they have something to do loosely connected to their month, and um, they all have coupons. And get that on my website, my Facebook page, or my website. Hopefully, uh, Amazon soon. But I, I like to think that it's gonna, it's the must-have gift of the year, Christmas gift of the year, because <laughs> it is uh, decorative, functional, and money-saving. And I think that's all three things we all could, uh, we all enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I was just gonna say, like Christmas gift checklist. We're all set here. Yeah, you've definitely raised an interesting point, too, that, like, it's not just about the steak by itself. It's like, what are you doing around it? Like, what's what's the scenery like? What fits for that moment? Yeah, exactly. And, they all, and you know, we all would love a, we would all love to have a picture of a cheesesteak on our wall. But if you did that, people might think, yeah, what are they doing here? But if it's a calendar. See? Oh, it's a calendar. Well, of course, it makes sense. Functional. I love it. Yeah. Decorative. <laughs> yeah, decorative. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jim. We've absolutely loved chatting with you and learning more about your Philadelphia cheesesteak adventure. We'll definitely be sure to include all of the links on how to follow you in our show notes. So be on the lookout for that. And yeah, thank you again. This has been wonderful. And we are ready to become cheesesteak questers along with you here. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe I... When COVID breaks, whenever you're comfortable, we can go out and have one together. I'd love it. I'd love it. Absolutely. I like the sound of that. All right. Thanks, Jim. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank yep. you. Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying the Yo Philly podcast, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we're back. So we really hope you enjoyed our latest Yo Philly podcast interview with Jim Pappas. He was a lot of fun to talk cheesesteaks with, and hopefully we can eat a few cheesesteaks with him in person after this whole COVID mess gets sorted out. And his website, again, is www.philadelphiacheesesteakadventure.com. Be sure to check it out. Also, if you're as hungry as we are now... And you want to go out and get an awesome cheesesteak somewhere, we have a link in our show notes for some awesome recommendations. For in-depth cheesesteak ratings and analysis, check out our guy, Jim Pappas. 
So during that interview, Jim used a term I haven't really heard a lot before, and he was saying something about cheesesteak toppings and additives, and he said something like, uh, you know, some places will put scrapple on them. And that was a bit of a new word for me and caused me to do kind of a double take during the interview. I had to look it up after. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and it turns out it's a pretty interesting term. And we thought it would be a great fit for this episode's John of the Week. John of the Week! So Scrapple has fairly deep and old roots here in Philadelphia. And we thought it would be just the perfect fit to close this episode out with. At first glance, if you Google Scrapple... It looks like this weird, dark brown, speckled loaf of mystery meat. That's putting it nicely. (laughs) (laughs) A few images show it as being kind of like pan fried. And I think I saw a few other images showing it as part of this like hearty breakfast with like eggs, toast, hash browns and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so Scrapple is actually a recipe and tradition that was brought to Philadelphia from Germany, actually, during the colonial times. And back in Germany, the concept of scrapple came from a rural tradition related to hog butchering, actually, and it dates back to the 16th century. And around that time, it wasn't really called scrapple then. Right. They called it panhas, panhas, or panhas, meaning pan rabbit. Uh, I don't know why there were three different terms, but just conveying what I found in the research. Uh, different dialects, you know. I guess maybe. Sure, but but pan panhas, I'll I'll say moving forward, I'll pick that one. So as part of the traditional hog butchering process, of course you have the prime cuts and things that are going for use with like bacon, sausages, and your pork loin and all that stuff. But in an effort to really utilize the entire pig, the remaining parts were used for panhas and also other recipes like black or blood puddings. The ingredients were, as the old saying goes, everything but the oink. Ew. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and it's worth noting that this didn't necessarily mean the ingredients were lesser quality meat parts, but rather it included everything that simply wasn't used for whatever they were making at the time. So it was just an effort to use all of the pig and reduce the amount of waste. Yum. Less hungry now. <laughs> But early German immigrants to the United States, who are often mistakenly referred to as Pennsylvania Dutch, of course brought with them their culinary traditions, and they shared their concept of panhas with English settlers. So the idea of scrapple is not merely a transplant from one area to another, but it's rather this interesting compromise between old and new world traditions. Yeah, and it's around this time that you can start to see the English influence on the traditional German dish. Early American colonists started to thicken the German panhas dish with cornmeal or buckwheat, and they also added some spices to it like sage and pepper. And these kinds of ingredients were a bit more common in America, but back in Germany and really Europe more broadly, cornmeal was not widely available, so they wouldn't have been able to develop something like scrapple there around this time. Yeah, so it really kind of became a hybrid thing, and like we said, you know, a combination of old and new world traditions. With that being said, I can't say personally that I find Scrapple all that appetizing. It doesn't really seem to appeal to me too much. It kind of reminds me of like Spam or something like that. I'm just not sure I'm sold. I don't know. Prove me wrong, guys. Given the change in the older German recipe after the influence of English cooking traditions, Panhas needed a new name, of course. And evidence of this new name, Scrapple, or Philadelphia Scrapple, was evident in some print examples dating back to the 1820s. Some historians argue that the name Scrapple came from a conflation of the German word Panhas Kropel, which is literally kind of like a slice of Panhas. Yeah, and you also have the English word scrapple, which normally referred to scraps or leftovers. But again, like we mentioned earlier, this didn't necessarily mean that you were only using bad quality meats. It's really like everything at your disposal, I guess. But the oink. But the oink. (laughs) And by the time the Civil War rolled around, there was a widespread need for food production, and scrapple was mass produced as a result and sort of industrialized. 
And that kind of makes sense. You know, Scrapple was probably pretty cheap to make and it could be packaged relatively easily. And we see pretty much in the way that it's formed, it comes in these like compact loaf shapes. So it's probably easy to package and ship. And to meet the growing Scrapple demand, companies were able to mass produce thousands of pounds of Scrapple each week and sealed each portion tight into metal containers. There you have it. So if you're interested in making Scrapple or you want to know the process of it, we've got you covered here. This recipe was published by Elizabeth Ellicott Lee in Domestic Cookery, which was published back in 1869. She says, quote, Take eight pounds of scraps of pork that will not do for sausage. Boil it in four gallons of water. When tender, chop fine, strain the liquor, and pour it back into the pot. Put in the meat, season it with sage, summer savory, salt, and pepper to taste. Stir in a quart of cornmeal, and after simmering a few minutes, thicken it with buckwheat flour very thick. Yum. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, right? I, I, I'm just, I don't know that I'm sold. So for whatever reason, the recipe we just read you and Scrapple in general has retained a very strong connection to the Philadelphia region and often invoked when going back to Philadelphia's rural roots. There have even been some festivals that have been specifically dedicated to Scrapple in places like the Apple Scrapple Festival in Bridgeville, Delaware, and at our very own Reading Terminal Market here in Philadelphia. So yeah, there you go. There's Scrapple for you. And there's this kind of interesting connection that Scrapple has with early folklore about the cheesesteak, I think. Yeah, Scrapple is by no means a top-shelf meat product. I think we've established that. And after its period of mass production and industrialization, it became widely available to working-class families and households. It's kind of the similar target audience for those early Italian immigrants and their sandwich carts. We've actually talked to a couple of local Philly friends who ate this stuff growing up, not because it was all they could afford, but because it has just become such a deep-rooted culinary tradition in the Philadelphia region, even though, again, I just, I'm really having a hard time wrapping my mind around eating this stuff. I know that there are a lot of Philadelphians that will swear by Scrapple and insist it's delicious if cooked properly. Yeah, I feel like we're setting ourselves up to put our money where our mouth is and try this. I know somebody's going to dare us to do it. I know. I just, I'm nervous about it. Like if you guys like it all there for you, go for it. I just don't know that I'm convinced. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I think that's all we have on Scrapple and then I'll wrap it up for this episode's John of the week. So thank you so much for listening to our episode this week. And now that you've listened to this episode, I'd say you're ready to head out and order a cheesesteak Wiz wit or wit out, and most importantly, wit confidence. Badunch. And if you're feeling really adventurous, maybe go fry a few eggs and get a slice of authentic Philadelphia Scrapple and taste one of Philadelphia's oldest culinary traditions. Yeah. So again, thank you as always for listening to the Yolk Philly podcast. If you've got recommendations for cheesesteaks or really want to convince us to try Scrapple, you know, reach out to us on social media and our email. We love hearing from you guys, and we will catch you later next week. Yep, see you guys. Later. The Yo Philly Podcast is an original production of M. Sova Studios. Be sure to follow at Yo Philly Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all the latest podcast news and developments. You can also email the show at yophillypod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.